Women all over the world are championing environmental initiatives, activating change and nurturing our environment like one of their own brood. Entrepreneurial Women with Purpose are celebrating women across Marlborough, New Zealand, who are leading our community as environmental guardians. Our podcasts are full of action-oriented takeaways, so be sure to have your journal as we delve into their stories and celebrate their passions. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Women with Purpose. I'm Catherine Vandermeulen and joining me on today's podcast is Penny Wardle, co-chair of Forest and Bird Marlborough and communications advisor at Tohoere Project. In this podcast series, we are celebrating women who are environmental guardians and leaders in Marlborough, New Zealand, who are actively creating positive environmental impact through their work, community projects or passion projects. How are you, Penny? Oh, well, I have a rather post-COVID voice, which will place this podcast in time, but generally well. Thanks, Catherine. We happily accept you whatever way you come. Thank you, Penny. Uh, so tell us more. Who is Penny Wardle? Oh, well, I guess I've got lots of different Penny Wardles, but for this podcast, I'll stick to the one with green hats on. So uh, I, um, if this role is co-chair of Forest and Bird Marlborough which um, most of you will be very familiar with Forest and Bird. It's just ce celebrated a hundred years of being spokesperson for nature, Te Reo o Te Taiao. And the Tohori um, Polaris catchment project is probably a little bit less familiar and that's a specific to Marlborough, a project that's about restoring nature from the top of the watersheds of um, the Polaris River right out to the Motueka or Havelock estuary. And it's driven by the Marlborough District Council, Ngāti Kuia Rangatane, uh, with support from Forest and Birds, so the two do tie together, and other organisations like DOC, Ministry for the Environment, Ministry for Primary Industries, the Landcare Trust, Fonterra, in the forestry industry, I don't like to leave anyone out. <laughs> and the influences, I guess, on my on the green penny uh, were probably the, the strongest influence from my parents, which I guess most of us can say that. Uh, my father was a botanist or ecologist, and my mother was his unofficial field assistant, especially because dad was colorblind, and so mum was often called on to pick out any red flowering plants, which he couldn't tell from the green leaves. And she was also a remedial reading teacher. And we lived in a very uh, uninspiring part of Christchurch where sandwiched between the Air Force base and a horrible fertiliser factory that gave me childhood asthma, which I've never had since with its emissions. But the highlight of those years was definitely we spent a lot of time getting out of the city into the Southern Alps and the big rivers of Canterbury. We went camping and tramping uh skiing which I wasn't so keen on believe it or not <laughs> but yeah so that that was the big escape really and dad was a climate visionary it's quite amazing now to think that he used to we did live in that part of town because he could catch a bus to work out at Lincoln which he did to minimize our family's carbon footprint and we were a nuclear family that those words were thrown around people from my generation or remember that was a sort of big thing to be mum dad and two children so that you've just got enough kids to replace yourself and no more. And interesting, yeah, perhaps I won't go down it now, but interesting to see we've really changed from that, where we're talking about how we can get more people <laughs> rather than how we can keep growth at a nil from a family size perspective. And one of my memories is 
earlier memories is sitting down with dad and he showed me a graph showing uh, climate change or climate warming after the industrial revolution. And that would have been in probably the late 60s, early 70s. And a lot of his work around changes in tree lines in New Zealand and especially South America, but also around the world. Um, he used that as a way of tracking climate change. And it was a really exciting time to grow up too because there was so much environmental protest around in those days. Uh, I think the thing I really remember is my father's, uh, my mother's cousin, who was a long-haired, bearded sculptor, parked his van outside our place for a while and it was really a travelling billboard for the Save the Manapori campaign. It was painted with pictures of horrible stumps sticking out of the lake and uh, I think the other thing from that time, some may remember the the, kitchen, the radio in our kitchen was often playing the song um, from the sort of campaign to save the um, save Manapuri about um, something about a fantail singing about all of nature having to die if the lake was flooded. And there was NFAC active at Okarito and trying to stop logging and people sitting in trees in Puruora. But the interesting thing was that while Dad um, who was an ecologist, was quite sympathetic to these campaigns. He was also really adamant that what we needed was sound, independent science rather than emotion. And he did foresee that otherwise decision-making might be driven by the people with the best resources, which is something that probably has played out a little. We've got um, people promoting development, having quite big budgets to be able to take things to hearings and then on to appeals through court and so on and very over-exhausted and financially stretched environmental groups trying to put the other side. Uh, then after finishing my university times, uh, another thing that made a huge impact on me is I did a lot of work in the outdoors. I cut tracks and I had a very unusual job gutting deer and taking out their jawbones as part of a research project looking at helicopter shooting of deer. Um, ran summer programs in the Catlins, laboured at Abel Tasman National Park, and a highlight would have been animal vegetation surveys where we went into very remote areas, including Fiordland and Stewart Island, uh, counting shit basically from possums and deer, and looking at um, exposure plots, seeing what the vegetation was doing. And that gave me quite a sort of heightened awareness, I guess, of impacts of um, pests on bush. And so when I'd, I'd finished my degrees, which were um, first an arts degree and then did a postgrad diploma in journalism, I really wanted to end up writing about conservation. But the reality was pretty different. I ended up getting a job in 1984 as farm reporter for the Melbourne Express in Blenheim. And that was actually a really fortunate thing. It really made me realise that rather than sort of preaching to people from above, it's great to get out there and get to know people who have lived a really different life to yourself. So I had a wonderful time driving my car around the high country and down the valleys and up the rivers <laughs> and did some really interesting things like going on a muster at Awapiri Station in the Tree, and I saw the beginning of some of the science with the Melbourne Research Centre setting up here. And I can even remember writing a story about, believe it or not, a farmer who owned a computer that was pretty revolutionary. <laughs> and so, Penny, what are you most passionate about being an environmental guardian? Well, I, strangely, um, I think what's ended up 
making me feel really inspired is again rubbing shoulders with people from really different backgrounds. It's all very well talking to people in a vacuum, but you tend to just bounce the same ideas around. But it's amazing what can what sort of progress you can make by getting together with people who've had really different life experiences to you and sharing ideas with them and being happy to disagree but just talk through things um, and it's quite inspiring and it can actually be quite productive uh, the sort of discussions you can have and how that can take you to some um, to or a agreement with one another where you might have thought that you were at opposite ends of the scale and also often some solutions to particular problems that you might have looked at from a really different perspective and I think that um, probably a, a good illustration of that is at one stage I was helping Environment Canterbury out with um, communicating what some of the things that the biodiversity group was doing there. And I went to a catchment meeting that was the start of a plan being drawn up for that catchment. And it was an exercise where we sort of people wandered in and it was a pretty antsy sort of atmosphere. You had farmers and you had scientists and you had sort of boffins from ECAN and forest and bird members. But some inspired person had actually put a pile of stones in the middle of the floor, all from the river that they were talking about, and then laid a map out. And they asked people to lay the stones on a place that they really loved, and then to talk about what it was about that place that really took their heart. And it was such a good start to collaboration from then on, because people heard one another's voices. They all related to that love for the place. And um, then there were a few years ahead, really, of them working together on a plan for that catchment. But I think that was such a strong start. And why is it so important for all of us to take leadership to protect our environment? Well, interesting. I don't think everybody can take leadership. I sort of read that question and thought, well, um, I know I've had times myself when I've been really busy bringing up children and working and there are just so many pressures on your life that leadership's really out of the question. And some people just really don't care, um, and possibly because of the, where they're at in their life, but that may happen later. But I think the thing to remember is that even if you can't be a leader, you can make a difference with really small contributions. So it might be something like minimising waste in your house or not owning a cat or keeping them inside at night or, I don't know, shopping at op shops, planting trees, riding your bike instead of driving a car. And then there are all those voluntary um, opportunities like through Forest and Bird, for example, to help with tree planting. And businesses too are picking up on that. They've realised that a way of team building is to get their staff out together doing something meaningful like restoration in a wetland. And so even though every person may not be a leader, all those efforts are coming together. And certainly in, in Marlborough, um, we are ending up leading, I think, in the environment because all these efforts are adding up. That real collective approach and collective effort of people coming together. Yes, and just all contributing a small bit, but it all adds up to a big, yeah, a big effort. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Penny, what have been some of the key learnings that have changed your perspective along the way? Hmm. It's probably, um, it backs up some of my, my sort of feelings there, back up some of the things I've said earlier, and they've, they've probably played out um, watching or being involved with the Tahori project, where, again, I've seen 
people with very diverse backgrounds and um, opinions coming together to plan a future not only for the environment but also themselves and their descendants. And it was a really hard row for them that these were mostly very outdoors sort of people and they found themselves stuck in rooms having to sort of talk through all sorts of ideas and it was a very tedious process coming up with uh, what they had in common I guess and what their differences were and then what really exemplified that project so um, at the end of many hours of these sort of discussions they came up with a vision and principles and aspirations that guide future decision making uh, and so that, that means they don't have to sort of work through all those things again they've already done it um, and then after doing that they've worked through some key messages and I thought I might just read some out there uh, there are multiple of these key messages but I thought some of the really inspiring ones that they want to get across to really anybody who's interested is that the bush is richly diverse and rings with birdsong Native plants, birds, bats, snails, insects, fish, shellfish, invertebrates, and marine species are flourishing. In rivers, streams, estuaries, and inlets, Taonga species are abundant. And rural catchments are a patchwork of protected areas and productive land with science, maturanga Māori, and local knowledge and experience guiding restoration efforts. Ecosystems flourish along with people's well-being and livelihoods. Future generations benefit from and understand how to sustain a healthy and natural world. And the good thing is, having come up with those and quite a few other key messages, these people are now able to get out there and do the actual on-the-ground mahi. They're I don't know, putting up fences, planting trees and controlling weeds, or they've got contractors doing that on their land, and there's funding available. And suddenly the whole project's moved from probably a, a level of frustration where people were just having to think and not seeing much happening, where it's just suddenly swinging into action. And what has been the proudest moment for you on this journey? When I thought back about that, um, the funny thing is my proudest moments are probably working as a journalist, despite taking quite a different tack now. Well, one example I was remembering is only 10 years ago, I was asked to cover a talk by Lord Christopher Monckton for the Marlborough Express. And this sort of British peer had been brought out to Marlborough by Marlborough Federated Farmers to push a sort of counter climate change message. And right at the start of that meeting, he asked for a vote on how many people believed in climate change as though it was some sort of religion. And only six out of 178 there actually put their hands up and said that they did agree that climate change was happening. And his main message was that maybe there was climate change, but if there was, it was extremely slow and don't put any money into trying to stop it. You'd be much better off giving your cash to your grandchildren. And I've remembered uh, a scientist in that audience, Mike Trott, who was at the Melbourne Research Centre at the time, sort of challenged him and said, how can you ignore increases in carbon dioxide and the security of our grandchildren? And he was accused of being emotional. <laughs> and what made me proud about that was Lord Monckton was most unhappy with my coverage and sent a letter of complaint to the editor, which I wish I had kept and framed on my wall because it's so amazing today. You would never have a room of 178 people in Marlborough and only six believe climate change was happening. And many people are even actively working to turn that around or do what they can to minimise their footprints. 
And a couple of other small ones, I wrote an article in the New Zealand Geographic about lupins, which um, highlighted that Ministry for Primary Industries was paying for farmers to sow these pretty flowers in catchments where they were choking out um, quite threatened bird species and plants. And at the same time, DOC was spending hundreds of thousands trying to control those weeds and probably had nothing to do with the article, but it was great when uh, that farming trial did end. And so, Penny, what does being a good ancestor mean to you? I think maybe the most important thing is to try to live lightly on the land and that while we might think that it's a dull sort of life to not, not go far and to um, perhaps not buy lots of fancy devices and keep life fairly simple, it is actually a, a very satisfying way of living. And I think that, that's been proven by, by, by many, really, that if you can just focus on the place where you live and get to know it really deeply, that that's a, a very rich sort of life. And when I really first got thinking about this was when my daughter and now son-in-law had a, a baby who's now nearly two and I said to them how do you feel having a child in the environment we have today when there things are just so many things are really scary ahead of us and they were pretty taken aback that I'd even ask them a question like that but they did come back to me with an answer which was that they would bring us up to learn how to be self-sufficient really to be able to live off the sea and the land which I thought was a pretty thoughtful answer and it made me think back to my grandmothers and one um, was raised as one of 12 children at Kinapuru Heads Portage and in those days but like today they had no road uh, and every few months they would row a boat to Portage and then uh, settle up their horse and ride over Toria Saddle and then take another boat to Picton to go shopping so needless to say that wasn't done very often and then my other grandmother lived at Hawea Flat in central Otago and she never learned to drive a car she always had a, a pony and trap uh, which she dropped my father at the school bus in a pony and trap which I think he found a bit embarrassing and my parents were from that war generation that many of us will be familiar with with the sort of waste not want not generation and I think maybe some of that has passed on to me. I realised that when one of my daughters was living overseas and feeling quite homesick and she wrote a poem about the good things she remembered about being at home and one of them mentioned washed plastic bags drying all around the kitchen, which I must admit is one of my habits. Uh, and that's become actually not a bad idea as we've got less and less plastic around us. They have become a bit more valuable. And I have borders in my house now that my children have left, and many of them are young people from all around the world. And so we have some great discussions about this sort of thing, and I'm trying to probably encourage them uh, to live a little bit more lightly, and then they um, have got some great ideas to share too. And I've ended up feeling quite proud of some of them, and I guess the, the ones that um, I'd really mark with respect would be one young guy is now an environmental lawyer in, Cor in Colorado, who worked vintages in Marlborough. Another one is um, an eco-architect um, who just won an award, again, in the States for his environmentally friendly architecture. At that time, he hadn't studied it. Um, and then there was a wonderful Chilean guy who lived with me while he was doing PhD research in the vineyards in Marlborough. And he's now really a renowned um, agroecologist who travels around sharing his message um, 
around the world with how you can actually practice agriculture while looking after ecology. Wow, so many great examples of uh, influence, of the beautiful influence that you can have even with the conversations or, you know, your own internal leadership within your own home, for example, that you can really change people's uh, paths. Um, yeah, not in a sort of preachy way. It's in a sharing yeah. of ideas way and a lot of fun. I, and I just love having people living in my house. It's <laughs> been, yeah, very inspiring, hopefully in all directions. So the Marlborough Economic Wellbeing Strategy is focused on a thriving economy balanced with a flourishing environment and vibrant communities. What actions are you taking through your work to collectively achieve this? Well, I, I wasn't actually very aware of the strategy, so thanks for the prompt to, I had a read of it and saw some really good things in there, uh, especially that idea of natural environment and biodiversity, Na the natural environment and biodiversity being of vital importance to the future of the Marlborough region. And it struck me that the Tahuri project is really an exemplar of that approach. Uh, it, it's, its whole mantra really is thriving economies, a flourishing environment and vibrant communities that that project captures. Um, and Forest and Bird is certainly a contributor to a flourishing environment. Um, we do a lot of planting projects around Melbourne. We're hoping to increasingly work with the Melbourne District Council uh, on some of those. There are a lot of people in Blenheim who are keen to do some planting around the town and it's a matter of finding where some suitable places are for that uh, to add to the those that have already been developed. Uh, and we've also, we quite often submit on local issues, for example, we supported the Melbourne District Council with its um, East Coast bylaw, which was designed at taking vehicles off beaches, which have become really sensitive after earthquake lift. Um, but I'm quite surprised that despite the environmental focus of that wellbeing strategy, there doesn't seem to have been any input from the environmental sector or consultation um, with environmental organisations or experts. And they're also excluded from the sectors that it's um, noted in the report are absent from the decision-making in that document and also future collaboration. So I'd really like to see them drawn in because I think for that policy or that strategy to be genuine, it really does need to include some environmental voices. If you have just purely business voices, they'll be very well-informed and probably well-intentioned, but um, there's a whole, um, yes, a whole lot of informing that could be done. And it's probably the reason that um, there's actually no explanation of what um, flourishing environment means in the, in the context of that environment. And of that document. So I think it's a really good start, but I'd like to see it go another step. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly uh, an evolution of a starting place that needs, that will need lots more influence to evolve and, and shape. I couldn't agree more. Yes, and I think it's a bit of a tendency actually is consultation um, with national and local governments with environmental groups can be a little token. And I, I think when um, it's especially hard when you have volunteers putting in large amounts of time sometimes to contributing to council strategies or plans or and it's um when all this time has been given it can be quite hard if, if it's um, been felt that they haven't been listened to that well but of course there are examples too if we um there's a very positive relationship and penny what is your vision for the community of marlborough for the future 
It's pretty simple, really. Uh, I think that the um, Tahuiri project is an exemplar project. That's how it's seen by all those involved. And I'm hoping that it might be used as a guide um, for expanding that approach right around Marlborough, you know, the arbitrary catchments, the wider catchment. Uh, I think so much could be achieved if um, following success of the Tahuiri project um, people all over Marlborough can start working together in that, in that sort of way. And by having a whole sort of celebratory, celebratory and positive approach to conservation um, and also um, people living comfortably into the future, you overcome that tendency for finger-pointing. Um, so often you see... Um, farmers saying, oh no, it's the forester's fault, and the forester's saying, no, it's the farmer's, and the, the greenies blaming everyone, and um, that's never a good start. Uh, so, yeah, I just hope that that whole collaborative approach could be expanded in Marlborough. And finally, what are three actions that our listeners can take from this discussion to embed into their worlds? I thought, firstly, be informed. Uh, as a, a mainstream journalist, I found it pretty hard to witness the slow decline in mainstream media uh, as people increasingly go online. Um, and I think the one positive recently has, having, has been having the local democracy reporting funding from government. And I think that's often misinterpreted as uh, making media sort of cosy up to government and, and feel behoven to... Um, to sort of push their messages, but it's actually the complete opposite, that without that fund, a lot of small paper, um, papers and places like Marlborough and radio stations and so on, and even national media, just wouldn't be able to look in any depth at some of the big issues happening in New Zealand. Uh, so I'm really quite, quite grateful for that, and I'm one of those people that's still addicted to getting up in the morning and making a cup of tea and reading the paper, but I recognise there aren't too many like that now and so I, I also acknowledge there's some very good sources of online news I know I myself listen to a lot of podcasts for international news especially from the New York Times and the Guardian and then you've got spin-off locally which um, is a great read and has some excellent investigative reporting uh, yeah I think I, I looked the other day and there was something about oh, something like online advice on how to live lightly or something along those lines. Um, and also I think for those who are really interested in deeper information, when you see news stories about environmental initiatives, like recently a report came out, um, our Freshwater 23, that was put together by the Ministry for the Environment and Stats New Zealand, uh, there'll always be links in there that you can go in and look at that original document and dive a bit deeper. And I think the ultimate really is some of the reports done by the politically neutral parliamentary commissioner for the environment. I think just about anything you're interested in the environment, you'll find a report that's been done on it at some stage. Just having a look at its website recently, it had something on urban green spaces, another one on forestry offsetting global warming, and another one on wetland management. Yeah, so probably covers that off. Oh, and the second, second, sorry, second um, action um, I'd suggest, much simpler really, is knowing that you can make a difference. I think a lot of people feel quite 
powerless as we've hit a, a real crisis point. Uh, we've had a lot of um, environmental problems along the way, but we've, we've reached a time now where we can't sleep when we hear rain on the roof that used to actually be quite relaxing uh, because we're worrying about um, flooding and sediment on the seabed and uh, swamping properties and so on. Um, but if, if um, it, it's not a good idea to just sit back and feel, oh, I'm completely helpless. I think um, there are quite a lot of ways that we have talked about that you might be able to make a small step that actually adds up to a big step when it's in combination with other people. And third point, again, I've, I've covered, um, talked about this, but it's talking to people with different opinions and backgrounds. And I'd add there too, make sure you include young people and old people who are often not listened to. They have some wonderful ideas, either based on experience or just freshness. They've got a very different perspective. They've, um, young people have grown up in the world we live in today and can probably throw a lot of light on it that we wouldn't be able to do alone. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That intergenerational learning is so important. Yes, yes, and it's quite seldom that it happens. Well, thank you so much, Penny, for sharing your world and your wisdom with entrepreneurial women with purpose. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, Catherine. This podcast is proudly supported by Yearlands Estate Winery. Yearlands lead the world in sustainable wine production. We're the first winery in the world to be Toitu Carbon Zero certified from inception. Use great prunings to heat water, miniature sheep to reduce mowing, and one of the largest solar arrays in New Zealand. With a rigorous biodiversity plan in action, Yearlands are on a mission to plant 1 million native trees and become an eco-sourcing hub for the region. We are grateful for the support of Yearlands to celebrate these women in our wonderful community of entrepreneurial women with purpose.